This week's episode is brought to you by a sponsor that's too scary for George. Visit HorrorBuzz.com, your source for all things on horror news. You have news on haunts, movies, books, games, and so much more. Check it out, especially during this Halloween season and beyond. That's HorrorBuzz.com. Okay, I wasn't listening. Is it time for me to start? Yes, you can, you okay, can go good. now, George. You I was go. scared. I, I didn't want to listen to it. Okay. Hello, and welcome to Communicore Weekly, the greatest online show and home of the world's first pair of independently born identical twins. I'm George. And I'm HorrorBuzz.com. <gasps> I'm just kidding, George. Don't do that. Don't get scared. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Jeez. Didn't mean to scare you. See, see, we have all sorts of fun here at Communicore <laughs> Weekly headquarters, east and west, obviously, messing with each other. <laughs> As best we can, yes. By the time the cadets hear this episode, I think I will have actually gone to a haunt. You will. And, I, you know, I kind of said to George uh, a couple of days ago that I don't think I'm going to do any trip reports on haunts this year. I'll keep that to the, the horror buzz. However, because it's become such a thing in the last couple of years that George can't do this stuff, the only trip report for horror stuff we're going to do is George going to a haunt this year. Yeah. Um, See how excited so, he sounds? Yeah, well, I mean... I'm really excited because I'll get to ride. Of course, this is at Carowinds. They're doing the Scarewinds thing, and I'm very excited to ride Fury three twenty five and the Intimidator. No, 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 no. That's not your focus of going though. What? No, no. You have to go into the mazes. You can't just go on the roller coasters. But no, no. That's that's my um, reward for doing the mazes. The yeah, but you have to do all the mazes first though. Gosh, there's like a bunch of them. Well, I know that, but that's why I have the guy from Carowinds who's going to follow you around, and every time you try to go towards uh, Fury, he's going to slap you with a ruler to make sure you go through the mazes first. Or you just yell boo at me and I'll go the other way. That's true. That works also. That works also. Uh, but uh, speaking of coasters, I'm excited about this week's history. Me too. Let's uh, okay. let's jump into this with that sweet, sweet segue. I want a segue. It's time for Theme Park History. Anyone that's been paying attention to George's website, ImagineNerding.com, knows that he's become obsessed with roller coasters lately. And, you know, we've covered the history of dark rides way back in episode 184, and both of us really learned a lot about the evolution of Pirates of the Caribbean and the Haunted Mansion, you know, two of the most famous dark rides. So, we decided to turn our attention to the history of roller coasters, which has always been a staple at amusement parks and theme parks everywhere. And yes, we promise to tackle the differences between amusement, theme, and thrill parks someday. We promise. Yeah, that's going to be a show unto itself. Yes. Basically. So, so, you know, when you think of roller coasters, most people think of those great wooden coasters like the Comet or the Beast. Or they think of the modern Hyper and Giga coasters. And the fact that I know that, yeah, brands me as a nerd. Uh, like Fury 325 or the Griffin. But roller coasters actually go back much further than you might think. You know, Jeff, let's fire up the Swamboat time travel machines. We're going to need them again. 1.21 gigawatts! <laughs> Great, Scott. Yeah, pretty much. Okay, I didn't say that right. Eh, fair enough. Close enough, yeah, though. Sorry. So our first stop on the Communicore Weekly tour of roller coasters is going to take us way back to St. Petersburg, Russia. Now, in Russia, Communicore Weekly 
podcast you? No, I did that wrong. Anyway, I hate the snow. (laughs) Back in the 17th century, slides were built to about a height of 80 feet and would have a 50 degree drop. Uh, And they would also be supported by wooden structures. And kind of as a reference for that, Splash Mountain at Walt Disney World is about a 50 foot drop at a 45 degree angle. So in the winter, the slides would be used with sleds running on the ice. And in the summer, wheeled carts and sometimes tracks would be used. And apparently, Catherine the Great was a fan and had several built on her, her grounds. Dude, it's a little cold here for shorts, you know? It's like, where where are we? Where the, were we? No, no, not, not where, George, but when are we? Oh, that's right, Constable. I forgot. <laughs> okay, so, St. Petersburg, Russia. There's some debate about the actual dates of the first Russian mountains, as they were called. Some historians date it to 1784, and others say it was actually they were built in France in 1817. Uh, regardless, both designs had guide rails, and the wheels were locked into the track, almost underneath it like a modern coaster. And they would also hit, for them, very high speeds. Now, get this. The first permanent Loop track was built in Paris in 1846. It was a single person sled that would go through a 13 foot vertical loop that reached a height of 43 feet. Um, And apparently they tested the loop with everything under the sun until the first human was allowed to ride. And uh, the first early loops were called centrifugal railways. And that's all we're gonna say. (laughs) The that next big scares me. It does scare me, actually. <laughs> Just thinking about doing that and the... No, never mind. Not going to think about it. Yeah. Um, the next big step would actually be the scenic railways. And we covered a few of these in episode 180 on the Coney Island episode. Um, the first gravity railroad was in... Was it Mock Chunk in Summit yeah. Hill, Pennsylvania? So the Mock Chunk Switchback Railway started life as a coal mine train in 1827. Uh, but by 1829, there were recorded pay-for riders for the descent. Now, during most mornings, mules would pull the cars full of coal uphill, which took four hours. Then the mules would take the 30-minute ride downhill. In the afternoons... <laughs> makes me laugh. What, they just get in the car and they push them? They just get in the car and they just go down the hill. Goodbye, mules! <laughs> um, in the afternoons, the Gravity Railway would take passengers. And at one point, the rides cost 50 cents a person. And they were often called switchback because they reversed directions as they went uh, down different inclines on the same hill. Um, kind of like uh, Lombard Street in San Francisco. And uh, Mock Chunk was closer to a runaway train than a real roller coaster. I think because they literally had no control over it. That's what I'm thinking too. Um, so, you know, when we talked about Coney Island, we mentioned LaMarcus Ada Thompson. And he created a gravity switchback railway in 1884 at Coney Island. Riders would climb a platform and then take a 600-foot ride down and then up to the other tower, and then they would return. Uh, That ride actually cost five cents per person. Thompson added undulating hills to his design as well, and eventually it would be replaced with a more oval track. Now, Philip Hinkle created the Gravity Pleasure Road, which had the first lift hill and was a complete circuit. And based on this competition, Thompson added tunnels with scenery to his coaster and created the very first scenic railways. And these would then become popular all over the country. Surprisingly, we would see the introduction of loops in the 1880s. Uh, The Flip-Flap Railway in Coney Island and the -the Loop-the-Loop in Columbus, Ohio were two of the first. And they didn't last very long since many riders suffered whiplash, (laughs) which means it was very safe. Yes. Um, 
John Miller developed the first under friction coaster in 1912, which basically kept the train from jumping the track, which is also a very important factor in roller coasters. Very good thing. Um, yeah. This led to the development of the Cyclone at Coney Island in 1927. Now, roller coasters, specifically the wooden ones like the Cyclone, would find massive popularity all over the country until the Great Depression. In 1959, the Matterhorn was introduced to the world. I don't know where that is, though. Any yeah, ideas? I've heard about it. I've heard about it. Um, it was actually the first steel tubular roller coaster and offered the ability to create corkscrews and loops. Um, but it'll almost be 20 years before we saw more steel roller coasters. Okay, so we hit 1972, which is great because it was two years after I was born. That's important, right? Now everybody knows how old I am. That's right. They do. Gosh. Math. Well, you, you can take that out, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah, okay, I will. Okay, good, good. Okay, so in 1972, which has no relation to my birth year at all, the racers would open at Kings Island in Cincinnati, Ohio. And besides being featured on the Brady Bunch, the racer would kick off the second golden age of coasters. The racer is an out-and-back wooden racing coaster, and it was unique because most racing coasters paralleled each other the entire ride. In this case, the racer's two tracks split and created two structures that met at the end. The racer was designed by John Allen of the Philadelphia Toboggan Company, and the racer directly inspired the Rebel Yell at King's Dominion and the recently closed Thunder Road at Carowinds. And of course, we would see more changes over the next 40 years, more so than any other time period in coaster history, with some designers becoming as prevalent as rock stars to nerds such as myself, like Bollinger and Mabillard, Intamin, Arrow, Vacoma, Rocky Mountain Coaster, and Zimperla, you know, just to name drop a few. <laughs> so in the 1970s, the corkscrew at Knott's Berry Farm would offer the first inversions. Uh, Revolution at Six Flags Magic Mountain would have the first vertical loop. And the Loch Ness Monster at Busch Gardens Williamsburg, by the way, one of the best roller coasters I've ever been on, uh, one of my first as well, had the first interlocking loops. Um, so returning to King's Island, the Beast would be the longest, tallest, and fastest wooden roller coaster. And it's still the longest wooden coaster in history today. Uh, so in the 1980s, we would see coasters come up to uh, up to seven inversions. Uh, the first Heartline Roll, the first stand-up coaster, the first circuit coaster to reach 200 feet. And we would also see the first suspended coaster, the bat. Not suspended from school, but actually suspended yeah. from, you know, the top of the track, right? Yes. Okay, yes, and the bat, I did get to ride that one, but I never got to ride the beast. Boo. So mad. So that's okay. Trip to Kings Island this summer. I'm doing the beast. Yep. Yeah, I just threw my hands up and nobody can see nobody it. Nobody can see. Nobody can see it. Okay, awkward. so. Very awkward. Okay, so with the evolution of steel coasters, we would see a huge amount of changes in the 1990s and 2000s. And there are almost as many types of coasters as there are coasters themselves. And some of them are more popular types than others. And we just want to, wanted to run over a few of them to give you guys some examples. Okay, so, and these are going to be alphabetical because I'm a librarian and that's how we do things. Okay, the first one we'll talk about is an accelerator coaster, usually built by the company Intamin. And it launches you up a large hill and right back down. Storm Runner at Hershey Park and Top Thrill Dragster at Cedar Point is an example. A dive coaster. These are made by Bollinger and Mabillard, and dive coasters have a free fall moment and at least a 90 degree drop. Shriek at Bush Gardens Tampa and Griffin at Bush Gardens Williamsburg are great examples, and Griffin might be one of my favorite coasters of all time. And there's also Floorless, which sounds kind of fun. Uh, these are also made by Bollinger and Mabillard, and the cars have no floor, and your legs swing freely. Uh, Bizarro, Kraken, the Rougarou and the Dominator are examples of these coasters. 
That brings us to flying. Now these coasters uh, feature a harness system in which you hang face down, which is pretty awesome. Your body and legs are secure though, so uh, don't worry. Um, <laughs> so some examples are Superman Ultimate Flight, Tatsu, Firehawk, and Air. Are, they're all flying coasters. Then there is the, the Giga Coasters, and no, that isn't one of Godzilla's enemies, I know what you guys are thinking. Um, but it's actually a type of coaster that surpasses 300 feet and completes a full circuit. And they're very similar to a Hyper Coaster, which we'll talk about next. Uh, Fury 325 at Carowinds and Millennium Force at Cedar Point are examples. So the Hyper Coasters, now those are coasters that reach 200 feet or higher, and they're known for speed and airtime. Maximum XL2000 at Cedar Point, uh, Goliath at Six Flags Over Georgia, Intimidator at Carowinds, and uh, there's 48 other ones wor worldwide that are hyper coasters. And uh, the next one up is called Inverted, which a lot of people like these. The train usually runs under the track and allows your legs to swing freely. Now, it's not floorless because you're sitting in a seat underneath the track itself. And this design was pioneered by Bollinger and Mabillard. And some examples, you got Batman the Ride at Six Flags. Um, great great Montu yeah, a great adventure, yeah. Montu at Busch Gardens, Tampa, Alpengeist at Busch Gardens, Williamsburg, and the Banshee at Kings Island. Okay, and then you've got launch coasters, which can be linear induction, hydraulic, catapult, or friction. And two great examples that most of us know are the rock and roller coaster and California Screamin' with Neil Patrick Harris, because we have to put that in there now, That's right? That's true, it's required. Okay, all right, and so then you have the mine train coasters. And these are steel coasters that, you know, mimic a steam train or a mine train. And of course, Big Thunder Mountain Railroad and uh, Thunder Run at Canada's Wonderland are great examples. Which brings us to the Wild Mouse. Now, these are uh, smaller coasters that usually only seat four to a car. And they have very tight turns and a lot of lateral G-forces. Uh, Primeval Whirl at Full Day Park uh, Animal Kingdom, um, Coast Rider at Knott's, and Goofy Sky School at DCA are all great examples of the Wild Mouse coasters. And then there is Wing, which is, you know, a coaster in which the riders sit on either side of the track with nothing above them or below them. And examples are the Wild Eagle at Dollywood, X-Flight at Six Flags Great America, and Gatekeeper at Cedar Point. Yeah, so there are, uh, obviously, there are a lot more coaster types that we haven't even touched on, but these are just a few of the more popular ones. And, you know, researching this article and riding, like, 29 coasters this summer, I kind of thought about, you know, what's going to be the next innovation in coaster design that they're going to have? You know, especially considering that there are limitations, really, to what the human body can take, especially G-forces. I mean, I won't mention getting blacked out on two coasters, but that happened. Um, <laughs> you know, is there going to be virtual reality included or more dark coasters, potentially, like rock and roller coaster? Hmm? Yeah. I don't know. We've also wondered where the term uh, roller coaster originated, and we actually found a very plausible explanation on a page from ultimaterollercoaster.com, and it says... Uh, Robert Cartmel provided the argument I found most sound in his book, The Incredible Scream Machine. It involves a small town in Massachusetts in a wooden ride. According to uh, Cartmel, quote, The sliding hill and toboggan were built around the inner walls of a skating rink on the third floor of a brick building. The 1,500-foot track ran across the walls from ceiling to floor, crisscrossing the rink in a spiraling figure-eight formation, end quote. The ride was patented by... Stephen Jackman and Byron Floyd and utilize a sled that ran on a track made of wooden rollers stacked next to each other. Built in Haverhill, Massachusetts, the coaster only survived for three years and had little to do with the physical development of the roller coaster. However, the roller coaster did get something from the Haverhill ride, a name. Exactly. I always wondered where that came from, so I was excited to run across that. A little that. roller coaster. Exactly. Makes sense to me. 
<laughs> well, we would love to know, more specifically, I would love to know, what is your favorite coaster of all time or your top couple of favorite coasters? Give us a call on the Communicore Weekly GOAT line at 424-785-4628. That's 424-785-GOAT. He's a nerd, he's a geek, but we all like to hear him speak. So listen up to the words from his speech. It's George's Book of the Week. This week's book is Marvel's Ant-Man, The Art of the Movie. So unfortunately, I did not get to see Ant-Man when it premiered, mainly due to my many theme park visits and roller coaster rides. But the movie was on the top of our list. And when I say our list, I mean me and my 11-year-old son. My list too. Um, <laughs> so that's... Jeff is on the list too. Um, he's 13. Um, so my 11-year-old really did love the film. And, you know, I thought the film was a great addition to the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Uh, similar to the Gardens of the Galaxy, Ant-Man was not the most well-known Marvel property. And I wasn't sure what to expect. But I know that uh, I knew that Ant-Man needed to be brought into the whole story arc for the Civil War films that are coming up. You know, and plus, after seeing the film, Ant-Man, I was reminded that the Marvel Universe is full of real people with real problems that get thrust into being heroes and villains, just like Community or Jeff Weekly. or Jeff and I, Jeff and me, Whatever, Jeff, yes, the rest of it doesn't matter. Okay. So the art of the movie is a little bit different from the other art of books that we've talked about here on the show. Whereas most of the other art of books for the animated films really cover the entire process, you know, the storyboarding, the character development, how they got the ideas for the stories. This book, um, pretty much focuses solely on the concept art for the film and doesn't get into the process too much. They discuss the uh, issues with designing the costumes, how they were trying to create the worlds, and you know, helping to define the script based on the preliminary art itself. Now, the majority of the book uh, basically is full-color illustrations that show how the characters progressed and went through the various design challenges and changes. And of course, most of it is focused on Ant-Man and Yellow Jacket. Uh, it really was pretty amazing to see the amount of art that went into the entire film. Uh, the book also offers quotes from the artists and the filmmakers about the process they followed to create the movie and really adds a lot to the book. It's not as much text as we're used to, but still pretty good. Uh, in most cases, the visual design staff really had a large hand in the final film, not just the costumes and scenery, but they helped shape the story as well. And when I was about halfway through the book, I realized what was so different about it. Uh, unlike most of the other Marvel films, this movie is very much based in a real world without major superheroes or beings from other worlds. And the filmmakers, you know, they also, they didn't need to spend a lot of time creating places that aren't already in existence. And, you know, that's why most of the 256 pages of the book are dedicated to character design and costumes. And, you know, it makes sense in this case, but it also seems like a bit of overkill. And the book could have been substantially shorter and maybe a little less expensive. But it comes in a beautiful slipcase, which is a hardcover box, which is suitable for displaying and looking at. Um, still, it's an incredible, an incredibly gorgeous book. And fans of Ant-Man or the Marvel Cinematic Universe are really going to enjoy it for what it adds. So it's a buy if you have a vested interest in the film or if you really just want to see it come over to my house. Uh, no, no, never mind. Everyone? Sorry, I was told I wasn't allowed to say that anymore. We got in trouble last time. Um, anyway, so this week's book is Marvel's Ant-Man, The Art of the Movie. Here's another minute that you can't get back. It's the 60 Tech Review. 
Okay, for this week's 60-second review, we're reviewing two new releases from Disney. The first one is LEGO Star Wars The New Yoda Chronicles, and the second one is the new Disney nature film, Monkey Kingdom. Wildly so different films that we're lumping together, but that's okay. <laughs> Deadlines, yes, people. wildly different. So, um, you know, this is an awesome time to be a Star Wars fan. We just received review copies of the LEGO uh, Yoda Chronicles, which I never watched before. And I've been reading all these great Star Wars books and stuff like that. But um, my youngest son, the 11-year-old, who I talk about a lot, has always been a huge fan of the LEGO series, especially the LEGO video games from Traveler's Tales, um, like the Star Wars and the Marvel ones. So I had really high hopes for this series. I just really hoped that the sense of humor would translate from the video games to the show. Yeah, I mean, I was a little concerned because there was a game a few years ago with a very similar name, and it was released on the app stores, and it just wasn't a lot of fun, <laughs> to be honest with you. Um, but that said, this DVD uh, definitely held up the standard of the LEGO games, to me at least. Um, the disc itself actually includes four episodes from the show. Escape from the Jedi Temple, Race for the Holocrons, Raid on Coruscant, and Clash of the Skywalkers. And most of the story centers on the ghost of Obi-Wan. Yes, I was a little frightened. And Yoda talking about adventures that took place between A New Hope and The Empire Strikes Back. And of course, they know that Luke needs to be trained as a Jedi, and that the Jedi holocrons are the best way to train him. Um, but sadly, all of the holocrons are being held by the Emperor. So you get the usual gang of Lego rebels, you know, Luke, Leia, Han, Chewbacca, and the droids, and they attempt to steal the holocrons, and hilarity ensues. And I really was surprised by the humor in the show. Yeah, it really does take the humor that we're used to from the video games, and it perfectly sets it into a TV show. And I actually found myself laughing out loud uh, a few more times than I expected <laughs> to while I was watching the episodes. Um, in a lot of ways, it was like watching the cutscenes from the games, but expanded and much, much funnier. Yeah, and obviously this series is not canon, and not going to be, but it delves into some interesting points of the Star Wars story. Uh, there are a lot of locations from the prequel that are visited and it's always fun to see lego versions of the characters and the ships and it was really really good to see darth vader step off step up and show off his comedic chops that's so important so and important unfortunately there were no bonus features really to speak of uh, aside from an alternate ending to clash of the skywalkers and i would have really liked to have seen how the episodes were made and the process behind bringing the lego uh to life for the screen mm -hmm. but that said even without them it's still a pretty solid offering yeah, I think if you're a Star Wars fan and a Star Wars Lego fan and you love the games, except for the one Jeff mentioned, I think it's a definite purchase. Yeah, absolutely. Go get the disc if you're a fan. Okay, so now we're going to talk about the Monkey Kingdom. Yay, not Disney's newest theme park. No, no, no. This is the Disney no, Nature still awesome. release. I'm not going to lie. Which could be. Okay. You know, I've always loved the Disney Nature films. They're incredibly impressive. The videography is great, but they also tell some fantastic stories. And with each film that's been released... They get better and more engaging. So when Monkey Kingdom showed up, we were pretty excited. Yeah, and not only was I excited because it was a Disney nature film, but also because uh, Tina Fey was narrating. Oh, because she's awesome. Who, who doesn't want that sassy voice telling them about monkeys? Exactly. Um, so this movie actually follows a newborn monkey and its mother as they struggle to survive within the competitive social hierarchy of the Monkey Kingdom, uh, a dynamic group of monkeys who live in the ancient ruins found deep in the story jungles of South Asia. Yeah, and everyone in my tribe really loved the movie, 
especially the drama that seemed to happen naturally. Uh, because who doesn't love monkey drama? We all love all monkey about. drama. We love it. So I was very surprised that the monkeys in the film had such a rigid social hierarchy. Um, if you weren't born as part of the ruling class in the monkey kingdom, then you did not get to eat the best fruit or sleep in the better branches. And it really, really made life tough for some of these monkeys. Yeah, and it always reminded me, I mean, it amazes me how much it reminds me uh, how much monkeys are like us. Because, I, yeah, we evolved from them, and they, it just always catches me off guard when something like this comes along, and I realize, oh, you know, they really aren't that much different from us. So the fact that there even is a hierarchy for them was surprising at first, but it also felt, like, kind of natural. Exactly. So, you know, anyways, as, as can be expected, uh, the film is gorgeous. Uh, the sweeping vistas and the shots of the monkeys at play are stunning. And as Jeff mentioned, Tina, De Tina Fey does one of the better jobs narrating the film. And I bet a few of her lines may have been ad-libbed. She probably took lessons from Communicore Weekly. Probably. Um, and, you know, I appreciated a few of the monkey numbers as well. And since we're running out of time, I won't sing the Hey Hey, We're the Monkeys. Oh, thankfully. Jeez. Exactly. Um, so in addition to the film itself, I always enjoy learning how they actually made the film. And that's why uh, the feature uh, Tales from the Kingdom was a lot of fun for me to watch. You know, I, I know it takes a lot to make these Disney nature films, and I appreciate the hard work and effort that filmmakers put into it. So it's always great to see how they do it. Yeah, it's it's something that I've always wondered about. And they've only been including it on some of the more recent releases. Uh, and the amount of time that they spend setting up and recording footage is just amazing, especially when they may have to walk through miles and miles to get one shot. Yeah, it's pretty yeah. crazy. Um, you know, but overall, this is a great addition to the Disney Nature films, and I'm very happy they, that they're continuing this series. It's great. Um, and it's really gorgeous to look into a world we never really get to see for ourselves, and it really brings these great, compelling stories to our screen. So this is a definite, I think, especially if you have kids. I think kids will enjoy oh, yeah, learning about monkeys. Oh, yeah, I think they'll love it, except for the termite, termite things. Well, mine is like that, that part. Close their eyes, but aside yeah, from that, close their eyes. Gulp so uh, two opposable thumbs up for Disney's Monkey Kingdom. Yes, absolutely. Yes. And then, you know, if you love Star Wars and Legos, then definitely get the Yoda Chronicles. Sometimes you might see it, sometimes you don't. Hey, look, what's that? It's a five-legged goat. <laughs> when you're wandering around uh, Buena Vista Street at California Adventure here in uh, lovely California, be sure to check out that old oak tree at the end of the street, right by the Starbucks. Now, this tree was actually transplanted from behind the Disneyland Hotel, giving DCA a piece of 1955 to add to its history. Though, if the street is supposed to be set in 1923 and the tree is from 1955, then how? And then the. Oh, man. I told you to put that Swan Boat time machine back, and. Is that like 22 extra years we add on to it? I think so. I'm so confused. Or we subtract right now. something. We need to ask our doctor friend. Dr. Scott, can you, can you write us in? Dr. Geek and let us know how that works or something. Yeah, I'm we're a little confused. Wow, but what we're not confused about uh -huh, is the winner for the year of a million or so limited time cadets for this week. As you guys might be playing the following the play at home game or something like that. Each week, Jeff and I have been giving <laughs> away a prize in our year of a million or so limited time cadets. And this week's prize, oh, before we get to the prize, you have to email communicorweekly at gmail.com with your name, address, and your address if you want to be part of this great prize giveaway. And we're getting down to like, what, like three and a half more months? Uh, yeah, something like that. Yeah. We're getting there. So it's we're September, getting close. October, November, December. Uh, a little, yeah, yeah, three and a half. So we're getting close. So email us at communicorweekly gmail.com to be part of this prize because we're giving away weekly prizes. And this week's prize pack is a plethora of Disney 
kids books that were sent to us from Disney Publishing Worldwide to give out. And I'm looking at them, trying not to, they're very exciting. But this week's winner is Jennifer E. from Bakersfield, California. The UFO capital of the world. Congratulations, Jennifer. Notice how George just blew right over that because he wants nothing to do with scary stuff. Yeah, well, UFOs can. Maybe they're friendly aliens? Okay, you keep believing that, George. Like the little green ones? Yeah, that, okay. Like the claw? Mm-hmm, sure. Okay, Those were toys. so before this gets any scarier, <laughs> we want to thank everybody for watching and listening to another episode of Communicore Weekly. Please uh, leave a comment on iTunes or rate us on iTunes or uh, on YouTube, wherever you listen to or watch the show. Let us know. We want to hear from you. Exactly. You can always email us, as I mentioned, at communicorweekly at gmail.com to enter our fabulous contest or just to say hello. And of course, you can always like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash communicorweekly. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Imaginerding. And he's at Jeff Heimbach. And be prepared if you follow me for a plethora of haunt posts coming very soon Ooh. on Instagram. Man, um, can I, like, block some of those posts? You can try. It's not going to... I'm just going to send them directly to your phone. <sighs> Speaking of phones, give us a call on the Communicore Weekly GOAT line at 424-785-4628. Yes, and make sure you visit communicoreweekly.spreadshirt.com to get a copy... Uh, get a copy... Yes, get a copy of our t-shirts to get your own copy of our t-shirts exactly Exactly. Uh, also if you pay attention to uh our twitter or our facebook page also every once in a while spreadshirt runs promotions like free shipping or 50 percent off and we always put the codes that you need to use on to get those things on there so make sure you follow us there so you can get those codes so you get them for cheaper um and also to get your your community core cadet official membership card or some stickers or a button send a self-addressed stamped envelope to community core weekly p.o box 432 orange california 92856 and you can always support the greatest online show at patreon.com just visit patreon.com slash weekly for jeff heimbuck I'm George Taylor. And for George Taylor, I'm Jeff Heimbuck. Thanks so much for listening, guys and gals. We'll see you next time on Communicore Weekly, the greatest online show. Goliath.